Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the leaked draft opinion of the forthcoming Supreme Court decision on the Mississippi abortion ban, written by Justice Alito, that almost gleefully calls for Roe and Casey to be overturned. Joining us to discuss this rare example of a constitutional right being taken away is Michelle Bratcher Goodwin, a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's the host of the popular podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin and is the author of a number of books, most recently Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. We'll discuss how 50 years later, this 1973 7-2 Supreme Court decision in which five Republican-appointed justices voted with the majority has come up against the new radical right-wing Republican Party and its political operatives in robes. Then we'll go to the UK and speak with Ilya Yablokov, a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communications, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in post-socialist countries. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. And we'll discuss his article at the New York Times, The Five Conspiracy Theories that Putin Has Weaponized. Then finally, we'll assess how much sanctions will damage Russia's economy and force Putin to negotiate an end to his war in Ukraine, which he has doubled down on with the expectation that he will declare war and call for a full mobilization on May the 9th. Joining us is David Kotz, Professor Emeritus of Economics and Senior Research Fellow in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is the author of The Rise and Fall of Neoliberal Capitalism and co-author with Fred Weir of Russia's Path from Gorbachev to Putin, The Demise of the Soviet System and the New Russia. We will discuss his article at the Democratic Left, The Ukraine War Dilemma for the U.S. Left. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now is Michelle Bratcher Goodwin, a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and a founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's the host of the popular podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, and is the author of a number of books, most recently, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michelle Goodwin. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Michelle. And there have been 27 amendments to the United States Constitution, mostly to enumerate new rights. Now the Supreme Court is poised to take away a right. How unusual is that? 
This is very unusual, although if we look at it within a milieu of the last decade, the Supreme Court has shown its cards in its willingness to gut voting rights and also um, on a path towards gutting reproductive rights. This is incredibly unusual. Um, what we see, Roe v. Wade is nearly 50 years old in the United States. It was a seven to two opinion, not even close. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed to the court. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. So even if we look at this um, as a matter of what does it mean to be a conservative justice? This is a dramatic departure from what we saw 50 years ago and really a dramatic departure from what we would have even seen 10 years ago before Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett came onto the United States Supreme Court. But Samuel Alito's draft, which was leaked to Politico, and most people think it's authentic and is likely to be the decision that comes down sometime in June or July. His tone is almost gleeful and caustic, and, and he mocks uh, the majority opinion in Roe written by Justice Harry Blackman. Well, he does. At nine different times in this draft opinion, he describes the reasoning as weak and that the uh, there were weaknesses and that it was weak. Um, there is a lot of um, excessiveness that one could find in his opinion where he really does mock uh, his colleagues on the court, those who existed, lived before, and some of those who were still alive, who were uh, part of the Planned Parenthood v. Casey ruling um, of the court. It is really um, an impolite decision, one could even say draft opinion um, here. And this uh, ruling is the Mississippi case, uh, which bans abortions after, what, f is it 15 weeks with no exceptions weeks for rape? 15 weeks of pregnancy. That's no right. Exceptions no for exceptions for rape? That's hmm. right. No exceptions for rape or incest. And as you've read the opinion, and so have I, Justice Alito does not mention that in this opinion. He does not spend time discussing this aspect of the law that it provides no exceptions for cases of incest uh, or for rape, which is a glaring omission given that it's such a central part of the Mississippi legislation. He also, Michelle, since you're an African-American woman, he talks about I'll just quote from his draft opinion. Some such supporters have been motivated by the desire to suppress the size of the African-American population. It is beyond dispute that Roe has had that demographic effect. A highly disproportionate percentage of aborted fetuses are black. But isn't the reality clearly that if abortion is banned, uh, poor black and brown women in the states that have banned it will be seeking back alley abortions and many will die. So I just don't get the logic there. Well, there are a couple of issues uh, to, to, to raise there. One, um, it, it's not just because I'm a, a black woman, but as a constitutional law scholar and a bioethicist, as I look at that, I, I see the inaccuracies of what it is that uh, Justice Alito 
supposes in this draft opinion. Um, you know, black women have been the euphemistic football in the political game that's been played around reproductive uh, rights types of issues. And they're long. They date back to American slavery in the United States, coercive and forced reproduction. Uh, later on, the denial of the ability to be able to choose to reproduce when they want it to. Uh, and now, um, in this way, being used as political scapegoats for the agendas that clearly some members of the Supreme Court have. And if we're clear students of history and the law, then we can see just the subterfuge in this and see, in fact, the kind of scurrilousness that undergirds using black people and these histories for matters of politi political and judicial expedience. And that's what we find here. Uh, to be clear, the history of eugenics in the United States started with white supremacy, but not targeting indigenous people and black people. It was actually to build a stronger, whiter race. This is actually what we know, and that if Justice Alito paid closer attention to jurisprudence from the Supreme Court, he'd find that in Buck v. Bell, which was a 1927 case that came before the United States Supreme Court that did not involve a black girl or woman, but involved a young white girl from Virginia who came from a poor family, and the state of Virginia was rounding up poor white people like Carrie Buck for sterilization. It is that Virginia law that ultimately became the platform for what was adopted by the Nazis in Germany. And it was in 1927 that the United States Supreme Court upheld that particular law. So this is why it's really important that we pay close attention to the law and history as we look at what will be coming from the United States Supreme Court. And again, I'm speaking with Michelle Bratcher-Goodwin, a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's the host of the popular podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine and is the author of a number of books, most recently, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And Michelle, you brought up rounding up people in the Nazis. How long before in these 13 states that have the trigger laws, which will immediately, if this opinion uh, holds, and we don't know why it was leaked. Some people suggest it was leaked by somebody on the uh, pro-choice side to mobilize people against it, and others have suggested that maybe it was a leaked by Alito himself to keep his fellow justices who expected to vote with him, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, on side. But... Won't we have situations in this country akin to Nazi Germany in the 30s where you will have vigilantes at Greyhound bus stations in these red states demanding the papers of young women taking bus rides to other states where abortions are available? So I'm very sensitive uh, to any of the claims that relate to slavery or that relate to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust when we're talking about matters like this. And let's be clear that what we see in this kind of totalitarian uh, tightness that we see coming out of these states, sadly, it does resemble aspects of the worst that we've seen certainly in this country. And as I've mentioned before, what we've had in this country has been borrowed and adopted 
um, by the Nazis in Germany, specifically eugenics. And what we will see is something that I think makes it a, a perhaps a, a closer um, and more precise analogy, and that is a Jane Crow, much like Jim Crow. During the period post-slavery in the United States, there were states that still had that sweet taste of slavery on their lips and wanted more of it. And so they passed various kinds of laws that would keep black people in second-class citizenship status, that would keep them fearful, um, that would cause them to be concerned about civil punishment and criminal punishment if they acted out of line. And then also those states doing what you described, such as sh- sheriffs and police officers showing up at train stations to make sure that black people couldn't get on trains to literally go to freedom in places like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, etc. And we already see more than the whispers of this coming from the very states that are dismantling abortion rights. They're already talking about platforms for criminal prosecution, for civil uh, prosecution and for civil you know, judgments. We already see that in Texas with the bounty hunter aspect of that law that provides for individuals to sue random people in the state who aid or bet individuals who want to be able to terminate a pregnancy. And what I think is important that we understand is not just what actually could happen, but also what this means in terms of inspiring fear in people, such that people fear actually exercising their rights, such that people fear communicating with other people, such that people fear exercising what is fundamentally theirs, which is their fundamental human right, their fundamental right to life. And when we think about a woman's right to life, women are 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. And this is empirical data and evidence that has been cited even by the United States Supreme Court. And that makes a draft opinion like this even more alarming. But aren't they heading towards Griswold as well, the Connecticut case over legalizing sure. uh, contraception? I mean, and, and sure. loving the mixed marriage sure. case, right? Isn't that Sure, isn't that and even the, cited in this case, right? So in terms of what's alarming today is that it's not just abortion. And we've already seen Justice Alito tickle around the edges of this in a case that's not even a decade old, that's from 2014, a case called Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, where Justice Alito again wrote the majority opinion in a split decision. And in that case, it involved and concerned contraception and contraceptive access and insurance plans um, at private corporations. And Justice Alito sided with essentially the corporations that claimed that they had religious objections to making sure that the insurance providers that they worked with would cover contraceptive access. And they said it was their religion that led them to believe that contraception at issue in that case were like abortifacients. Now, Doctors will tell you, scientific evidence shows that contraceptions don't cause abortion, that IUDs are not the equivalent of having an abortion, but essentially that's what we get out of that case. So contraception has already been at risk at the Supreme Court 
um, and with an opinion written by Justice Alito. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Michelle, one man, Leonard Leo, this very conservative Opus Dei Catholic of the Federalist Society, has literally presented lists and chosen about five of the justices already on this court, uh, with the exception of Clarence Thomas. One man and this one society has handpicked these people. That does not reflect the diversity of this country. They've also moved against OSHA and against the CDC. So this is a very activist court that's basically going to take us back to the the days of FDR when he fought against the PAC court. Isn't that the ultimate agenda, not just killing Roe and Casey and moving on to Griswold, etc.? Well, that's right. What's most alarming in these times, and I would connect it to the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, which is that we see the vulnerability of the rule of law in the United States and the vulnerability of our democracy, and that this is all a part of a larger playbook that is dismantling the rights that Americans hold dear not just those within the spaces of reproductive freedom, which are critically important and impact more than half the population, impact the whole population. But when we're talking about pregnancy and abortion, then we're talking about more than half the population, but equally alarming. And that should cause all Americans deep concern is what this means for our democracy when we see processes such as what we have in recent years involving our Supreme Court And then also what this has meant then um, in real life, such as children being packed in cages in the United States, um, representatives from the United States, lawyers representing the United States, arguing before courts that these children do not deserve soap uh, and toothpaste and other kinds of decisions that are part of uh, this dismantling of democracy um, of the past decade. Well, Michelle Bratcher-Goodwin, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And again, I've been speaking with Michelle Bratcher-Goodwin, who's the Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and Founding Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's the host of the popular podcast, On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, at Ms. Magazine, and is the author of a number of books, most recently, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Connecticut Brief Station Baker back speaking with a Russian lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England about his New York Times article, The Five Conspiracy Theories That Putin Has Weaponized. Damn, can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset and Tennessee's made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi gone Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK 
is Ilya Yablokov, who is a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communication, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in post-socialist countries. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. And he has an article in the New York Times, The Five Conspiracy Theories that Putin Has Weaponized. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ilya Yablokov. Hi, Ian. Hi. Well, thanks for joining us. And just as a sort of caveat, we also have conspiracy theories here in the United States that uh, animate... No way. No way. Really? (laughs) Well, I mean, the entire Republican Party, which is controlled by Donald Trump, is animated by the conspiracy theory that Donald Trump won the last election and that the current president of the United States, Joe Biden, is an imposter. So that's pretty serious. And is it possible then that the one export that Putin has managed to export here to the United States, along with helping elect Donald Trump in 2016, is the work of his political technologist, Vyslav Surkov, the idea of... Nothing is real and everything is possible? No, I don't think so. I, I think you're putting too uh, much value into... You're giving too much value to Vladislav Surkov, really. Um, first of all, uh, I'm sorry to say, but the United States of America is an equally conspiracy state as Russia. That probably sounds controversial, but all the research into conspiracy theories points to the fact that the United States, in the United States, conspiracy theories appeared, you know, in the 17th century together with the first settlers. So the tradition of seeing political opponents as plotters is much longer than in Russia. What uh, what's been happening in the last five, six years since Trump's victory was basically a further polarization in the, in American society, uh, in which a minor part was played by the Russian trolls, hackers, etc. Uh, I'm not a big supporter of the theory that Vladimir Putin elected Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, when you say where, that Vladimir Putin elected Donald Trump, you kind of, it's it's a, such a huge compliment to the Kremlin. This is exactly what they want to hear because this is exactly what they want to be. They want to be seen as the guys who rule the world and can elect presidents, prime ministers, uh, can take states out of European Union, etc. That's not right. There was some involvement. Uh, there was some work of uh, the intelligence service services but saying that, you know, it's a kind of Trump was elected thanks to Putin. I think it's a little bit uh, as a strong, sta- a stronger statement which, with which I would agree. Sure. Well, there are many other factors involved, obviously. But in terms of propaganda, there does seem to be similarities 
between Russian state media and, say, Fox News, and mm. and Russian state media has been featuring a lot of the star of Fox News, mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. uh, and with his conspiracy theory, which dovetails with one of the five conspiracy theories you wrote about mm-hmm. in the New York Times, and that is the idea that there's secret U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. bioweapons lab in uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty natural alliance between the Russian propaganda media uh, and Fox News. In many ways, the the audience of Fox News would share quite a lot of conspiratorial notions, such as biolabs, such as uh, critical ad- attitudes towards Joe Biden, um and, and and things like that um because it's they consider today's administration today's presidential administration as the common enemy that they're fighting with so the enemy of my enemy is my friend that's the principle and that is why when Tucker Carlson picks up the story from I mean, maybe Infowars, I don't know, his sources, what he reads or what his producers read, then mentions it when the Kremlin, see when the, when the guys in the Russian media see that the Americans are talking about the relevant conspiracy theory that can play into the hands of propaganda in Russia today, they take, Don, uh, they, they take Carlson and they weaponize him they because there is another factor that plays really well inside of russia it's this really kind of ambivalent attitude to the us to the west on the one hand the us and the west in general are hated by pretty big numbers of russians but at the same time they are secretly admired by many Russians. Do they want them or not? Russian oligarchs live in the West. They buy houses in the UK, in the US. Many Russians watch American films, series, buy American devices. So they are immersed in this global culture where the United States is is a hegemonic power. But at the same time, when the American guy says the same thing as the Russian television says, that might mean something. So this is this ambivalence that plays into the hands of Russian propaganda. And again, I'm speaking with Ilya Yablokov, who's in the UK. He's a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communication, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in the post-socialist countries. He is the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. And he has an article at the New York Times, The Five Conspiracy Theories that Putin Has Weaponized. So let's start with your, your list of five conspiracy theories that Putin has weaponized. And the first one is the West wants to carve up 
Russian territory. And mm -hmm. that's an extraordinary one because they literally made up something that former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright had just died. They made up a comment from her that Russian natural riches should be redistributed and controlled by America. Mm -hmm. She never said that. She mm -hmm. never said anything like that. But it eventually became repeated enough that it became an accepted truth, right? Mm -hmm. It's a hoax. It's a, it's a classic example of a hoax that it's like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Uh, it's a completely made-up story uh, that been repeated again and again and again from 2006 um, until it started its own life. Now it's a, you know, it's a self-fulfilled prophecy in many ways. If Russia collapses at some point, if Putin's, uh, Putin's rule collapses and triggers uh, separation, probably that is what is going to happen. Some of the areas in Siberia and the Far East will be under the influence of the powerful countries in this region. China, United States, Kazakhstan, you name it. And the reality is, in 2006, the story, and I write about it in the book, I, I, I trace the development of this conspiracy theory. Uh, it was kind of artificially created by journalists together with some, you know, hardliners in the Kremlin. Then it was spread in uh, via the press conference of Vladimir Putin when this story was mentioned. And since this, this was the press conference with the audience of like millions of people, Russian-speaking audiences across the world, this story became basically legitimized by Vladimir Putin. And then uh, we see that in 2015, it's been repeated by the head of uh, the uh, uh, Security Council in his analysis of the Ukrainian conflict in 2014-2015. And at some point, we see that Vladimir Putin himself refers to that again, uh, which in a way shows that it probably could be a political instrument, kind of a story invented for a specific reason, like, you know, ballot rigging in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So the story invented specifically to undermine legitimacy of Joe Biden. So this story was also invented specifically to sort of scare millions of Russians to lose the um, territorial integrity of Russia, of the country. Uh, but, 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 but the reality is the, those who invented it became really strong believers in that. And the next one is NATO has turned Ukraine into a military camp because the idea that Russia is liberating Ukraine from Nazis or denazifying the country, that came up uh, yesterday with Foreign Minister Lavrov speaking mm -hmm. uh, to an Italian news organization claiming that Hitler was part Jewish and that the Jews are the, the worst anti-Semites. Um, mm -hmm. That, of course, is blown up in Lavrov's face, particularly in Israel. But in general, the idea that NATO... I mean, <laughs> the irony is, Ilya, is that because of Putin's invasion, mm -hmm. Ukraine has become, in many ways, a NATO state. NATO arms are pouring in. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. there's no there's no way in the world that Ukraine is not going to be armed as long as they can resist Russia. Mm-hmm. They they're not going to become neutral. They're going to defend themselves, and they're defending themselves at this moment. So, I see that as a great irony. Oh, it's it's very ironic. It's uh, actually and think about Finland. Uh, yeah, and, that, and Sweden. That w- yeah, and Sweden. Well, Sweden, I think, doesn't have a land border with uh, with Russia, but Finland does have. And just you know, just a reminder, uh, part of the territories of Russia were kind of taken from Finland after the uh, Soviet Finnish war in 1939-1940. Yeah, so it's not ironic. It's tragic. It's dramatic for what has been done to the neighboring states. That decision, which... Well, I mean, I cannot even rationalize this decision of Putin. It was not rational, really. Kind of, there is no way to 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 see any r- r- rational there. But also, it will eventually create and and help to embody all those fears and conspiracy theories that the Kremlin was creating and kind of promoting throughout the last 22 years. And that's ironic, that's stupid, but that's what it is. And the opposition wants to destroy Russia from within and is backed by the West. That, of course, is what they use against Navalny and everybody Mm -hmm. else to suggest that if you criticize Putin or the state, you are therefore an agent of the CIA or, or... Western imperialists, and that seems to be working. I mean, this war has been very popular, hasn't it, in terms of the propaganda machine that's drummed up? You know, we had we had a similar situation here with the shock and awe when the U.S. went into Iraq. There was mm-hmm. all kinds of jingoism and patriotism. Mm-hmm. How is it working with Navalny? Has some support, but not a lot of support, right? Well, um, Navalny certainly has the chances to become the leader when Putin's regime is over. But uh, the drama of Navalny is uh, he is a politician in the country that that does not like a diversity of voices. Or in other words, if you have a politician that tries to create, to build up the profile and the electorate, uh, trying to find the um, core electorate by first going to nationalists, then going to uh, those anti-corruption activists, then going to, you know, kind of local um, supporting base. Navalny is no angel, right? He's he's a he's a great guy. He's a hero. He's a martyr in many ways, but he's no angel. So uh, he's been he's he's been kind of playing around with the Russian nationalists for quite a while, and he's been using pretty xenophobic references in his campaign. For example, in 2013, about the labor migrants from the Central Asian countries. Uh, but certainly his views can be contested in the open, in unfree elections. 
But thanks to the propaganda media and thanks to all the character assassination that's been done in the last 10 years, Navalny became the figure of uh, of the paralyzed, uh, sorry, polarized society. So some people kind of praise him. Some people who would potentially be against Putin say, we will never vote for, for Navalny because he's a very dangerous figure. He's going to do the same thing as Yeltsin did, as, as Putin did, etc. cetera. Uh, and then the others say, oh, we will never vote for someone who ever studied in the United States. There is something fishy about him. And as a result, you have no other kind of strong candidates to lead the opposition. And so Navalny is there to accept and kind of take all the beating and to take all the accusations of uh, being a U.S. spy, being the kind of the puppet that is going to destroy Russia, etc. But Navalny is also kind of thanks to the fact that he's so proactive and always trying to find his core electorate and always try to uh, shift his politics from one kind of problem to another, that brought him all these kind of set of conspiratorial allegations that haunt him uh, until, you know, until today. But again, uh, if we imagine the moment that the top echelon of power in Russia disappears, Navalny is the only guy who has network of supporters, who knows whom he's going to appoint as a president. So he's the best candidate. And therefore, I'm very worried about his well-being in that sense. So just in the last minute, then, we already talked about the fifth uh, conspiracy theory mm. about bioweapons labs, which Tucker Carlson is helping mm. Russia propagate. But number four, the global LGBTQ movement is a plot mm. against Russia. The BBC interviewed uh, one of the Russian proxy fighters in the Donbass, the pro-Russian proxy fighters in the Donbass, and asking why is he fighting against his own people, the Ukrainians. And mm-hmm. he said, because this Zelensky government is going to force me to marry a man. So it mm-hmm. is working, is it not, this paranoia about gays? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's, it is working, and that's one of the main tenets of uh, the current ideology. Uh, but it's one of those, you know, made-up stories about Ukraine that, you know, Russians would like, some Russians, not all Russians, some Russians would like to, you know, kind of support. But the again, the irony is, it's a very ironic conversation we have here, um, that in 2017, I happened to be at the gay pride in Kiev. It was just a coincidence. And the thing is that the gay pride was so well defended by the police because the authorities in the city were afraid of the kind of participants of the gay pride being beaten by the locals, by the local nationalists. So the reality is very different from uh, from those stories that are being spread on various media channels in Russia. And it has nothing to reality, but that's that's the power of this anti-Ukrainian propaganda. Uh, again, like the United States, where people, well, tend not to be really knowledgeable about things that happen abroad, right? Uh, it's a big country and it's a big world, right? Russians 
also do not know much about what happens outside. So they have a lot of stereotypes, they have a lot of biases and misunderstandings about how the world works. So when it comes to propaganda, in Russia it works on, on two different levels. The grassroots level is when uh, the authorities are trying to impose certain views about, let's say, um, corruption or uh, twist some Kremlin's policies like the pension reform in the way they want it to be channeled, like the kind of beneficial for the, for the authorities, for the Kremlin. Russians will be very skeptical because they kind of traditionally, historically, are very skeptical about what the authorities do. That, you know, it starts back in the Russian imperial times and then certainly repeats again during the Soviet period. So whenever it comes to something that an ordinary Russian is familiar with, prices uh, like petrol prices, corruption, things like that, then propaganda doesn't work. But when it comes to things imagined that an ordinary Russian would probably not know, including gay people, right? Not that they are non-existent in Russia, but they are hiding. They they don't want to talk about their private life in public because it is a very hostile environment. So when you talk about Ukraine and things that happen in the United States or things that happen in, I don't know, LGBTQ, whatever, in uh, the Scandinavian countries, these work really well for for the ordinary Russian. Because on an ordinary, for an ordinary Russian, there is somewhere in the region, let's say, in Siberia or in the Far East, or indeed in Central Russia, things that happen abroad are more or less mean nothing. So you can play with this content if you are a propaganda guy as much as you can. So these LGBTQ plus fears are actually... A totally made-up story. It's yet another hoax, but it works so well because it, it's it 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 works with the conservative views that many Russians still hold, and the and the Orthodox Church uh, yeah, propagates yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ilya, we've run out of time, but I appreciate uh, you joining us here very much, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All the best. And I've been speaking with Ilya Yablokov, who's in the UK, where he's a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communications, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in post-socialist countries. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. And he has an article in the New York Times, The Five Conspiracy Theories That Putin Has Weaponized. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing how much sanctions will damage Russia's economy and how the Ukraine war has created a dilemma for the U.S. left. So someone's gonna die. 
And joining us now is David Cotts, who's a Professor Emeritus of Economics and a Senior Research Fellow in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Neoliberal Capitalism and the co-author with Fred Weir of Russia's Path from Gorbachev to Putin, The Demise of the Soviet System and the New Russia. And he has an article at the Democratic Left, The Ukraine War Dilemma for the U.S. Left. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Cotts. Well, glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of the dilemma for the U.S. left, there was a vote in the House on supporting Ukraine, and AOC and members of the squad voted against it. Only of Cory Bush, like three or four, voted against it. But they were joined by an equal number on the furthest fringes of the far right in the Republican Party in the House, and that's really saying something. So what do you make of that uh, anomaly? Well, uh, I think the reasons are different. There, there's a long history of the U.S. of there being a uh, a section of the the right wing, the political right wing, that is leery of getting involved in foreign wars. That goes way back to early uh, 20th century, uh, and then uh, there has been on the left also an opposition to getting involved in foreign wars. The right wing sees it as it's not worth wasting American lives to help other countries. That's the right wing approach to this, whereas the left wing approach has been that wars uh, hurt working people of all the countries that participate, and uh, the our country should not be joining them. Uh, so it's a different basis uh, for reluctance. And in this case, uh, some on the Republican right seem to admire uh, the Putin regime in Russia. Uh, they, uh, those who are uh, kind of right-wing nationalists see Putin as role model. Whereas on the left, uh, I don't think AOC uh, or the others on the left see Putin as a role model, but are concerned about the, the uh, war, the enthusiasm for war that's being ginned up around this very complex conflict. Well, also Christian nationalists uh, identify with Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church as well. Yes, in their indeed. Anti-gay and anti-Muslim biases, etc. But do surely... Well, by the way, let me, let me just point out there's an irony. The Russian government does not take an anti-Muslim position. There are, uh, there are a lot of Muslims in Russia. And while it's true that Putin has endowed the uh, the Russian Orthodox Church with special status, he's been careful to also cultivate the Muslim uh, institutions and communities in Russia. But do you think that the American left recognizes that, you know, that there's some nostalgia for, for socialism that is misplaced? If anything, Putin is certainly, he hates Lenin, he admires Stalin, and if anything, he's a fascist. Well, I, I basically agree with you. There's a, in some, in a small section of the Western left that uh, sort of never got over a reflexive identification with the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, the Soviet Union uh, was dismantled. The Communist Party rule was uh, ended. And uh, Putin was part of the movement that overthrew it. Uh, and he, uh, as we saw in Putin's uh, long uh, uh, article, I guess you'd call it, or post, his speech, 
uh, in which he uh, he blamed Lenin for the problems uh, problem of Ukraine as he sees it. Uh, Putin is the head of an oligarchic regime, uh, oligarchic capitalist uh, state in post-Soviet Russia. He has uh, completed the process begun under Yeltsin, the first president, of eliminating uh, any democracy in Russia after the Soviet Union had been significantly democratized in its last years before it was dismantled. And uh, some people are misled by the fact that uh, there are inter-imperial rivalries in the world and Russia, which is the Russian state, which has emerged as a uh, a weaker but still powerful uh, capitalist state has conflicts with the with U.S. imperialism, and so the Russian state takes what the left finds to be good positions on some uh, questions, such as opposing the U.S. war in Iraq. But that doesn't mean that the Putin government is uh, progressive uh, within the world stage. And again, I'm speaking with David Koch, who's a professor emeritus of economics and a senior research fellow in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Neoliberal Capitalism and the co-author with Fred Weir of Russia's Path from Gorbachev to Putin, The Demise of the Soviet System and the New Russia. And he has an article at the Democratic Left, The Ukraine War, Dilemma for the U.S. Left. And in terms of this war, which... There's an expectation on May the 9th, which is a big holiday in Russia and, and former Soviet Union, the day that celebrates the victory over the Nazis in World War II in Europe. There's an expectation that Putin will call for a full mobilization. And already they're starting to annex parts of the occupied territories in, in Ukraine and switch to rubles and put their own people in the government. So it looks as if Putin is doubling down and this war could go on for a long time. Since you study the Russian economy, when is it going to get worse? The theory being or the strategy on the part of the West is that eventually the sanctions will start to bite and Putin will have to make a choice between his imperial ambitions and the reality of his economy and the assumption is he will choose the latter. What do you think? Well, I don't think there's much grounds for believing that. Sanctions have been applied in many cases historically, and uh, uh, they, they only are effective in very unusual circumstances. And it, it, I can't see any likelihood that the Russian government is going to change course over sanctions. Uh, remember, about half the, more than half the countries in the world have remained neutral about this war. And... Uh, there seems to be unanimity if you just look at uh, North America and, uh, or at least the northern part of North America and Western Europe uh, in supporting uh, sanctions against Russia. But uh, China, India, there are many, many parts of the global south. Uh, it seems highly unlikely they're going to observe sanctions. If the, if the U.S. tries to enforce actions against third countries, it's going to be a big problem. So it, it looks to me as that there is going to be economic pain in Russia, but uh, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which that leads to a uh, giving in to what the U.S. is demanding. Now, there is a uh, underlying, uh, long-standing underlying conflict that is not 
Russia versus Ukraine, it's Russia versus the U.S. that stems from the attempt since 1992 to put uh, NATO and uh, U.S. military, uh, U.S. weapons, U.S. trainers around as much as possible of the border of post-Soviet Russia. There's, it's part of the policy of the announced policy of preventing uh, any state from becoming a potential serious uh, economic or, or military uh, competitor to the U.S. This is this is not a reasonable strategy. Uh, it's been applied to China, leading to a lot of problems, and uh, and in the case of Russia, uh, the flare point was the uh, Donbas region of Ukraine which is a complicated issue. And I think Russia was making reasonable demands around that, which is that Ukraine go back to a position of neutrality uh, and respect the accords that were reached in uh, 2014, the Minsk Accords, Minsk II, which called for uh, the uh, parts of the Donbass region to have some autonomy within the Ukrainian state. I think those are reasonable demands. Well, there's no question the historical record is pretty clear that the encroachment of NATO eastward never took into consideration Russia's legitimate security concerns. Right. But is there, and, and in fact the Pope just said that NATO has been barking at Russia's door. So is there any evidence that had the U.S. and NATO in in the post Cold War era, instead of expanding eastward, and they, you know, there's the famous Baker Gorbachev conversation, right. which was designed to get the Russians out of Germany, where Baker said we're not going to move an inch eastward, right. which was was automatically shot down by his boss, President Bush, the first President Bush. But nevertheless, had the U.S. and NATO encouraged a neutral buffer zone in that in the Baltics and in Poland and the Czech Republic, etc. Would Russia have become less territorial? Because Putin keeps saying that the greatest tragedy, geopolitical tragedy that happened was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So what's the evidence that Putin and the Russians would have accepted a neutral buffer zone and become a peaceful non- Aggressive country. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's easy to uh, ascribe the uh, worst motives to an adversary, and it's hard to prove that uh, you know what they might or might not do in the future. But if you look at uh, uh, what has happened uh, and then evaluate Putin's statements, I mean, most Russians think the demise of the Soviet Union was a disaster. Uh, this is an overwhelmingly supported view in Russia and in uh, some of the other former Soviet republics. Uh, the living standard of the majority of people went down when that happened. And, and uh, there, a very, very, the sort of worst form of capitalism emerged. Uh, so the fact that Putin voices that doesn't mean that he's got a strategy to recreate the Soviet Union, which was, uh, whose basis was a socialist economy. Putin is a, uh, supports capitalism. And if you look at uh, how uh, Russia under Yeltsin and Putin has related to the other countries in Europe, uh, Russia has, has uh, emphasized uh, building economic ties with EU countries. 
it has not tried to, uh, there's never been any hint of a threat to the its former allies in Eastern Europe, and even the former republics. The Russia has had a sort of a dance with Belarus over the years, where Russia has encouraged Belarus to form a close union, but has never forced it. It appears to me that what the Russian that what the Russian government wants is uh, a buffer zone and good relations with the states around it. Uh, recently, uh, Kazakhstan, the Kazakhstan government, asked for for uh, Russian troops to help quell an outbreak of protests. Uh, Russia sent troops. The American media said, "Oh, they're never going to leave," and they left very soon. You know, within days, there's, I don't see evidence that Russia aims to uh, expand its uh, control and, and eventually possibly even threaten Western Europe. I think that's a myth that has been propagated to justify a very aggressive response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which, by the way, I do not think was justified. I do not support Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, which has terrible costs for people in Ukraine and and in Russia. So just in closing then, the Maidan revolution had more to do with Ukraine wanting to join the EU than joining NATO. So is Putin more concerned about the EU? Because my sense is that when you look at it, what does Putin offer as this kind of capitalist mafia state run by oligarchs and the Siloviki that he regulates. I mean, what do they offer? They offer the governments like like Lukashenko. They offer gangster government. And if you have a, a pro-European democracy with the rule of law next door, whose standard of living will be improving uh, because of the lack of corruption, because corruption is debilitating. So wouldn't that be a threat to Putin? If all these countries on his border were neutral but thriving democracies with the rule of law, what does he offer? What is Putin's model? Well, I agree that uh, Russia does not offer an attractive model, but I'm afraid that the model that has actually been brought by the EU to Eastern Europe is somewhat different from the promise. I, I can see that uh, you know, people in uh, Ukraine look at what life is like in in uh, France or Italy, and it's a lot better than what they have. But uh, I think it's a real stretch to call Ukraine a budding democracy. I think it has a rather uh, similar structure to that of Russia in many ways. Uh, it has a bunch of oligarchs who are very powerful. Uh, uh, just recently, the uh, uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, banned the main opposition party. The Ukrainian government has taken over all the mass media. It doesn't look like a democracy to me. And it was installed by the armed overthrow of a democratically elected president in 2013 to 14 uh, in, a, in an uprising where the, uh, the armed units that seized the presidential uh, offices uh, were neo-Nazi. Uh, organizations. And it was then that Ukraine changed its position from neutrality to a plan to join both the EU and NATO. Both of those were adopted. Uh, and the American, our government supported 
that overthrow uh, because I think they saw a chance to eventually get Ukraine into NATO. So it, I think it may be that the uh, Ukrainian people who were westward looking were mainly interested in the in the EU, but the events that have developed have been uh, have involved a plan to pull Ukraine into NATO. And of course, now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, that I think the evidence shows that there's increased support among Ukrainians for joining NATO. So the the invasion was a disaster for I think uh, for Russia as well as for Ukraine. Well, David Coates, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, nice to talk with you. And again, I've been speaking with David Coates, who's a professor emeritus of economics and a senior research fellow in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of Neoliberal Capitalism and the co-author with Fred Weir of Russia's Path from Gorbachev to Putin, The Demise of the Soviet System and the New Russia. And he has an article at the Democratic Left, The Ukraine War, Dilemma for the U.S. Left. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids